It helped stimulate the communist revolution. It then contributed towards the spirit of disillusionment with uh, communism that ultimately led to its downfall. This is the Insight Guides podcast. I'm Zara, one of the travel editors here. At Insight Guides, we connect you with people on the ground with the best knowledge of the area you're travelling to. Our network of local experts design and book unique personal trips for each individual traveller. This episode, we're travelling back to the beginning of the 20th century, to the birth of a train line that's thought of as the greatest feat of railway engineering in the world. It stretches 5,700 miles, all within one country, slicing through vast areas of previously undeveloped land that ranges from conditions of extreme cold to sweltering heat. Today, we're looking into the history behind the Trans-Siberian Railway in Russia. A network of railways connecting Moscow to Vladivostok in Siberia, the Trans-Siberian is the longest railway in the world. Host of our sister podcast, The Rough Guide to Everywhere, Amy White met with railway historian Christian Walmar to bring us the story. Right, my name's Christian Walmar. I'm uh, the author of To the Edge of the World, which is the history of the Trans-Siberian, which I think is the world's greatest railway. That's Christian. His dad was born in Moscow in 1896 and fought for the Russians in the First World War. He fled Russia just after the revolution and ended up in the UK where Christian was born. Christian's book places the Trans-Siberian Railway at the centre of a century of Russian politics. But how did a train line change the course of Russian political history? Our story starts just before the birth of Christian's dad in Tsarist Russia in the late 1800s. You have to remember that Russia at the time was an absolute monarchy. So it had a Tsar and basically what the Tsar decided to do Uh, the Russian government did. Uh, There was no kind of hint of democracy. Within a context like that, how would you even go about suggesting the idea for the most ambitious railway in the world? It was all down to one man. Sergei Vita was uh, an exceptional man. I mean, one of these geniuses who ends up being responsible for a major project. And you get people like that across the world, you know, wherever you look, uh, Suez Canal, the Panama Canal, various other railways. There's often one kind of brilliant person who pushes the scheme through. And in this case, it was Sergei Vita, who was transport minister Um, And he pushed very strongly for uh, the railway, seeing it both as important militarily and important commercially, and also as a way of uh, bringing a lot of people to settle in Siberia, rather like uh, people went around the same time to the American West and kind of settled it there. But he also had the ear of uh, the Tsar, and that was very important. For a whole year... Sergei Vita attempted to persuade Tsar Alexander that a railway connecting Siberia to Moscow would revolutionise Russia's commercial and military power. And it worked! It was started off by the Tsar's son, uh, Nicholas, who uh, laid the foundation stone at Vladivostok Station, 
1891 as he happened to be there uh, coming back from a trip to Japan and construction started on several sections of the railway at the same time. It was an incredibly difficult process because there was no local labour force, uh, so everybody had to be brought in. There was really no no local people who wanted to or able to work on the railway. It required bringing in all the materials from Western Russia. It involved working really only five or six months of the year because during the frozen conditions of the winter, it's pretty much impossible to build uh, the railway and overall it was a feat of fantastic uh, engineering that amazingly got uh, completed in 10 years. So that's that. A massive success for the Tsar. In just 10 years Russia built the world's most impressive railway. Unfortunately it wasn't quite as simple as that. It used up a vast number of resources in what was a very poor country. So uh, rather than using that money to modernise Russia or to encourage the development of uh, industries and so on, it was used to build this railway, which did help some industries, the steel industry and coal industry, whatever, but really wasn't kind of uh, the sort of catalyst for economic development that it might have been had the money been spent uh, elsewhere. And the first thing that the railway did was actually trigger off a war with uh, Japan, which saw, quite rightly, that the line had been built possibly as a springboard for dominating other parts of uh, the Far East. And they won every battle. The the Russians used the Trans-Siberian to bring their troops down Uh, to uh, the east, but the Trans-Siberian at the time was a very crude railway, uh, and the Russians were absolutely overwhelmed by the Japanese, lost every war, had to sign a humiliating peace agreement in in 1905, and that triggered off what was uh, the first stages of the revolution. There was a revolt, there were riots in the streets in, in Moscow, um, there were demands for a parliament. Actually, the Tsar at the time absolutely refused to uh, really create a democracy. So one could say that the Trans-Siberian contributed both by using up a lot of resources but also triggering off this war to uh, the beginnings of the revolution. Yes, that's right. Christian believes that the travesty caused by the Trans-Siberian Railway fueled the beginnings of revolution in Russia in 1905. That, in turn, helped to set the wheels in motion for the full Russian revolution and deposing of the Tsar in 1917, among other elements, of course. I asked Christian what the post-revolution communist government made of the railway. Communist government immediately saw the Trans-Siberian, which had been greatly damaged uh, in the First World War and the subsequent revolution, as a very important uh, strategic resource. And they used it both to ensure that people could reach Siberia and use the agricultural land and and develop uh, what were then collective farms, But they also used it to bring in lots of mineral resources, particularly iron ore and coal from Siberia to Western Russia. So uh, they recognised that without the Trans-Siberian, 
they would not have the, the resources to industrialize uh, rapidly. Then, of course, they also used the Trans-Siberian as a way of sending people out into exile, into what were gulags, in concentration camps, where people who fell foul of the communist regime were sent for punishment, mostly never to return and suffer terrible deprivation. And Stalin, in particular, in the 1930s, sent you know hundreds of thousands of people uh, to exile in uh, Siberia, on the Trans-Siberian. The Trans-Siberian went from a capitalist venture built by the Tsar to being used as the symbol of communist greatness, as well as Stalin's tool to transport millions of political prisoners to labour camps. By the 30s, they relied so heavily on the train, they decided to build an extension. Called the Baikal Amur Mainline, the BAM. And it was intended to go north of Lake Baikal. The existing line goes south of that. Lake Baikal is three, 400 miles long, uh, one of the biggest lakes in the world. So it went far further north and into much more difficult territory. And the idea here was again, that uh, it would exploit resources, there'd be mineral ore, and it would also bring in people to exploit the land. But it proved incredibly difficult uh, to build. And Stalin initially sent people from the gulags to construct it, but the Second World War intervened and construction stopped and then restarted again with the use of prisoners of war, mainly German and Japanese, who mostly perished in the efforts to build the railway. After the war, Stalin introduced a massive curveball to the construction of the Baikal Amur mainline. Instead of using gulag workers and prisoners of war, he recruited the young pioneers. They were kind of like scouts, kind of kids in their 70, late teens, early 20s who were dispatched to build this line on the basis that this was a great communist enterprise. There was literally millions of them. They were treated uh, reasonably well, unlike their predecessors, uh, the prisoners of war, the gulag inmates. But uh, they were promised things like housing, cars, and considerable amounts of money to uh, work on the line. And much of this never materialized. So although the line was completed, one could say that these kids who never got the rewards they were supposed to get from building the line were very much part of the disillusionment uh, with communism that actually ultimately led to the fall of communism, which, which changed Russia uh, completely and moved it in uh, 1989 away from uh, being a communist regime. Could the Trans-Siberian be the most influential railway in world history? It's contributed to so much political change. Christians certainly think so. The Trans-Siberian is the most important railway in a way in the world history because it helped stimulate the communist revolution in uh, 1905 initially and then 1917. It then played a very important role in the Second World War in 
that Stalin moved a lot of resources to the east on the Trans-Siberian. A lot of factories were set up there, thanks to the line, well away from uh, the German invaders. And then he made the mistake of uh, trying to build this uh, grand projet of uh, the Baikal Amur mainline, which proved in the end, to uh, really defeat Stalin. I know it was only completed kind of 20 or 30 years later and contributed to the disillusionment with communism because all these young people who were sent out there to help build a line, the young pioneers, they were called, who were supposed to be inspired uh, by the brilliance of this project to show how communism was the right kind of way forward as opposed to the nasty capitalists in uh, uh, the West. Uh, actually, what they found was you know, a project that was incredibly difficult, that was mired in technical difficulties, that really was a railway that wasn't going anywhere, particularly just to the vast kind of empty areas of Siberia and therefore didn't serve much purpose. And all the things that they were promised, uh, housing, cars and whatever, and never materialised. So when, it came, when they came back, uh, a lot of these young pioneers by now in their 20s and 30s uh, contributed towards the spirit of disillusionment with communism that ultimately led to its downfall. But the thing that made Christian really fall in love with the Trans-Siberian Railway was taking the journey itself. I took the railway uh, once. I took it uh, east, uh, heading westwards from Vladivostok. And for the first two and a half days, there's really nothing much but birch trees and a few kind of very small villages, one, one major town. Um, and apart from that, nothing very much. And you do get this fantastic uh, impression of the size of the world and how you can trundle along. It goes about 60 miles an hour. It crosses a few rivers, goes through a few forests, but you relax into it in a way that maybe you, you can't in any other kind of form of holiday. You just, there's no internet signal for most of it. Uh, so you chill out and just uh, stare out the window at these amazing scenes of vastness where in many places probably nobody has ever stepped. And the fact that there are not many people there, the fact that you have time to dwell on the history of it, I think is one of the great reasons for, for travelling on the Trans-Siberian. Whether you're searching for scenic backdrops, have the urge to throw yourself into a fascinating part of history, or just to simply travel without phone signal, you may be organising your own Trans-Siberian Railway journey right now. Most people who ride the Trans-Siberian take the opportunity to stop off in cities and towns along the way. Head to insightguides.com where you can book a specially tailored trip through our website. We released a new Insight Guides book this year called Great Railway Journeys of Europe, you can order it from our website. Find more information on Christian and buy his book Edge of the World at christianwalmart.co.uk 
That's W-O-L-M-A-R. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Zara Sakabasi. This series is a reduced listening production by Jesse Lawson. Today's episode features sound design by Louis Grace. Special thanks to Christian Walmar. Next episode, we're winding through the twisting alleyways of the Fez Medina in Morocco. Thank you.